If you have a brain, you have bias. So let's just own it. Some biases help us by simplifying our decision-making process. Other biases hold us back by impacting who gets hired and promoted, and even who we approach to be our friends. Welcome to Breaking the Bias, a podcast where we interview impact makers who are breaking the bias when it comes to inclusion and equity. Because sharing our stories is how real belonging happens. I really think we run the risk of missing opportunity when you treat two groups of people who share an environment together differently purely based on who their employer is. So, you know, you, you said it, Ash, 40, 50% of the workforce is, is becoming contingent, then that means millions of people are working in the same environment alongside each other, full-time and contingent, They're sharing the same break room, creating the same relationships, feeling the culture of the organisation within which they're working. So in order to truly uh, saturate the understanding and empathy associated with diversity and inclusion, that's a group that, that deserves equal attention as a full-time workforce. Today, Consciously Unbiased founder Ashish Kaushal virtually sits down with Brian Hoffmeyer and Elijah Bradshaw, two executives at Beeline, a tech platform that connects businesses to talent in the global extended workforce. They dive into how companies have the power to move the needle on equality and why belonging matters not only for full-time employees, but also contingent workers, such as contractors and freelancers. They talk about the impact of the pandemic on the gig economy, how companies can create safe spaces for inclusion for all employees, not just some, why we are in the middle of a workplace revolution and how to adapt. Now, on to their conversation. Why is DNI and contingent workforce so important to you personally? You know, I think for me, it uh, really comes down to we have such an amazing opportunity to make an incredible impact, right? You know, contingent workforce is something that's growing at all of our clients. You know, the number of workers they're using, the importance of contingent workforce uh, to their business is growing. And, but one of the things we also know is that it's often not measured well. It's not captured in a system. And that applies to the diversity status of the contingent workforce as well. So there's such an opportunity for companies to make a difference by increasing the diversity of their organizations by focusing on their contingent workforce. And by its very nature, the contingent workforce is just that. It's temporary. It turns over. And uh, and so you can make a difference very quickly in hitting your diversity goals by focusing on your contingent workforce. Absolutely. Elijah, do you want to add to that? Yeah, and I definitely echo what Hoff said. I, th- I think you know, I th- we might end up talking about this today, but, uh, you know, I think that the continued workforce to some extent is, and I don't think it's anybody's fault, but can, can feel undervalued and in certain, in certain circumstances. And I think that when we think about DE&I and diversity and inclusion, you know, that last word inclusion is critical because it implies that everybody should be included. And I think there's a genuine opportunity to improve and amplify that, you know, that voice for the contingent workforce. And so anything that we can do to do that, we should be doing. Absolutely. And, you know, um, I was, uh, I talk about this quite often, but you see companies talk on the news about how they want to increase their diversity footprint, right? And if you think about where society has been going the last 10 years, and now it's probably even more so today, is that everyone's working remote, everyone's traveling, everyone's somewhat of a temp worker or a contingent worker. But beyond that, if you look at your overall employment population within a company, it's growing to about 40% to 50% of your overall employee base, right? And so if you only work on 
diversity with half your company, then you're only going to get a quarter of your goals, right? And so I think that's something that people don't realize when they talk about this is they always say, you know, HR deals with the full-time direct hire contingents, another area we don't want to deal with. That's a different situation. But the reality is if you're trying to change a culture and build inclusion, you need to include all of them. Yeah, that's that's so very true, you know, because, yeah, the companies are saying that, you know, I'm X percent diverse and celebrating that, then, but they're not tracking their contingent workforce. They, they could be way, way off. Um, and I think your, your point's a really good one. It, a trend we see around um, HR involvement, you know, we've seen increasing HR and talent acquisition involvement in, uh, in the contingent workforce at our clients. And I think that's been very helpful in a number of ways, you know, shifting the focus from, you know, solely a procurement one, you know, that's looking at things like savings to really focusing on talent and how work should be get done. But I think HR has also brought in and helped advance the need for diversity, equity, inclusion, and, and moving beyond, you know, just do I have a diverse group of suppliers in terms of who they are owned by to truly looking at is the talent that those suppliers are bringing to be diverse. Yeah. Yeah. And I think the other thing is, I really think we run the risk of missing opportunity when you treat two groups of people who share an environment together differently, purely based on who their employer is. So, you know, you, you said it, Ash, 40 to 50% of the workforce is, is becoming contingent. Then that means millions of people are working in the same environment alongside each other, full time and contingent. They're sharing the same break room, creating the same relationships, feeling the culture of the organization within which they're working. So, um, I think, you know, in order to truly uh, saturate the understanding and empathy associated with diversity and inclusion, that's a group that, that deserves equal attention um, as a full-time workforce. No, absolutely. And think about just from a productivity standpoint, and I don't know if you guys are um, building something around this or measuring around this, but if I'm treated like a second-class citizen because I'm a temp labor person or a contingent worker, as people say, and I don't feel like I belong, then I probably won't put as much effort into making productivity happen for you as you as I could. And I guarantee there's, we get to the point where we start measuring that, you'll start seeing productivity gains really increase if you create an inclusion for all. I don't think there's great ways to measure that right now, but it's, it's very interesting to consider. Yeah, because it's just, if you don't feel like you're truly part of the company, they're not valued. And you know, this applies to all contingent workers you're not you're not going to be bought in you're not going to give it your all it's just it's sort of human nature i think to, to behave that way i love what you guys are doing both from a cultural standpoint you're doing the training internally you're living your truth you're making diversity goals and then you're putting that into your product and i think i always say you can't compete with passion and so making that part of your dna and and that's just going to roll into your products and i think that's Something that I think all organizations need to learn from what, what you guys are doing. What I've noticed in our consciously unbiased work with Beeline is that leaders within the company are really making an effort to live their truth. Can you share how you as a leader are living your truth and what Beeline is doing to encourage all employees to do the same? I think for everybody, you know, living your truth is definitely going to be different. Um, for me, it's really about understanding the responsibility I have to put Dee and I at the forefront of how we operate it as a business because... I think in some cases, while um, I don't think that there's a base sense in the organisation that it isn't important, but I do think that there's some people who might feel uncertain uh, or uncomfortable about talking about it. So all of my efforts really go to create an environment or try to create an environment where people feel safe, trusted and comfortable to talk about this 
um, you know, the good and the bad as if it were any other topic at all. And I think a big part of that is, is, is just what I said, you know, it, it takes courage to, to talk about this. Uh, and that's a big part of the reason why the element of safety in creating a safe environment is super important. And, you know, recently we've had a number of colleagues who have been encouraged to share incredibly personal things about their, their lives in this area. And that is a critical part of, of continuing to perpetuate the sense of comfort and, and transparency. And, you know, the, the critical thing for us too is that we do have a CEO who's exceptionally passionate about it and knowing that everything, you know, does come back to leadership and that it, you know, coming from the top is so critical. Uh, and he's someone who's arguably as passionate about this you know, social opportunity as, as much as anyone and so when, it, when that uh, message comes from the top two, I think that is a big part of, of how we're encouraging everybody to, to feel really, really good about um, focusing on this topic. And not just now, but, but always. And it being part of our DNA, which to a great extent it already is, but there's always opportunity for more. I agree. And I, lo- I love that you framed it about safety, right? Because I think we always talk about diversity and inclusion. And some people think it's a fluffy thing or a nice thing to have or a favor. And um, the reality is it's actually also just creating a safe environment for people, you know, and I think that's something that's sort of not talked about enough. Right. Yeah. The people that feel safer are going to make, you know, better, more interesting, riskier decisions that can really impact the company in a good way. You know, uh, they're, they're, they're going to put themselves out on a limb and that that's, that's what advanced, you know, that's what makes a company truly innovative. So, um, it's really important. You know, I, I think for, for me, a lot of this journey has been around, acknowledging what I don't know and that it's not, it's not others responsibility to teach me what I should know, but it's my responsibility to learn those things. Um, and, you know, I, I, you know, I think it was probably 18 months or two years ago, Ash, you and I had a conversation and, you know, I, I came out and asked you, you know, like, at, you know, I am a white male, I am privileged and I know that. And I, like, I kind of said, like, do I have a right to be talking about this? And, um, you know, you, you came back to me and said, we, you know, we need you to talk about this because of, of the privilege, because of the place that you're in. And that, that really hit home to me, you know, that, that I've got this real responsibility to, to do that and to use, you know, the platform I've been given, you know, both personally and professionally to, to do this. And the other thing that's really been, that's hit home for me a lot lately, you know, Elijah was talking a lot about, you know, the, the brave things that some of our our colleagues have shared, you know, across the company, you know, in a very public, you know, all hands forum. I, I love the show Ted Lasso and, and one of the, the, the quotes from the first season, and it's actually, it's attributed to Walt Whitman, but I've actually learned recently that no one can confirm that Walt Whitman ever said this, but the quote is be curious, not judgmental. Um, and, you know, I, I try to, to do that all the time when I'm, I'm talking to somebody and that, you know, has a perspective different than me that has a, a lived experience different than me that acts different, you know, whatever it's, is to really, you know, stop and make yourself ask that question. Um, I think it's, for me anyway, it's a good way of, of living and sort of checking my own biases and, and preconceived notions. Absolutely. And Brian, I love that you brought up our, one of our first conversations, because I think one of the great things about, you know, one of the things that shows how to empower people of privilege is that you have curiosity and you didn't say, you know, I'm a white male privileged person, so I shouldn't, I should stay out of the way. You're like, no, I'm going to get part of, I'm going to be part of this, learn more about it. And I'm going to evangelize. And I think that's what we all need to do is that's how you make change happen and make it contagious is show the passion and curiosity around it. When it comes to creating 
cultural change, what missteps have you guys experienced and what have you found to be truly effective? It's a great question uh, because certainly for all of the nobility and our efforts, um, you know, and our true belief in the cause is always going to be potential missteps. I think we learned early on uh, that while, you know, creating that environment of safety and openness is really important, it can't feel pushed upon people. It needs to be something that we all experience together and, and we do it together. Uh, you know, and, and early on we were challenged on that where, where people uh, or someone had the confidence to, to say that we were, you know, they felt that that was what was, they were experiencing. And, you know, the good thing about that is that clearly we've created an environment where it's okay to come and say, hey, I'm not sure about what it is that is happening or I'm feeling like, um, you know, this is being pushed upon me because that's, you know, a big part of our culture and in direct communication and having the confidence to do that. But it also, the second part is it gives us an opportunity to go deep with that, per that person and really have them understand our intent. And even if it means that we have to have multiple individual conversations or we want to have multiple individual conversations to uh, help express and understand, then that's, that's something that we'll do. And I think, you know, maybe it's about, for us, it's not about, and we've said this to the person or the people, is, you know, it's not make, about trying to make you uncomfortable, it's trying to make others more comfortable mm -hmm. and in our environment and uh, you know, perhaps where they haven't before. And so I think they're, they're, the, they're the, main, the main things. I love that. I love the, the phrase, it's not about making you uncomfortable, it's about making other people more comfortable. And I also think the core of kind of what you said was, it's okay to try and fail and make mistakes, but it's not okay not to try. Yeah, I think that's been one of the other things, you know, I think both internally, which within Beeline that Elijah was speaking to, but in our conversations, in my conversations with our clients, with our partners, it, it really is that this is a, a journey and, and everybody's going to get there in different ways. Some are going to take, you know, big steps forward. Some are going to move very, you know, you know, very slowly, um, you know, as they adopt new ways of thinking. Um, and we just need to, to incur, you know, encourage those behaviors, encourage progress to your point, Ash, you know, encouraged at least trying something and seeing what works and then saying, okay, that wasn't perfect. Let's, we're going to pivot a little bit and go this direction. And so we encourage our customers to at least, you know, start creating that plan and, and do it within what works within, you know, their companies. Cause it's, you know, some companies are more ready for this than others, you know, when it comes to things, you know, like, you know, treating contingent workers, you know, inclusively and not, and not as sort of second-class citizens, you know, companies have these really outdated views on co-employment that, you know, we need to help them get past so they can, you know, do things that are inclusive, you know, never mind like the different colored badge or not inviting somebody to your Christmas party, <laughs> like stuff that's truly important, right? Absolutely. Before we go into the metrics and what's important around that, I wanted to, Brian, ask you one more question. You've always said in, in order to create cultural change, you need to shift the needle on empathy. What does empathy mean to you and how do we do that? You know, I didn't make this up, but it, you know, empathy really, you know, we always say like empathy is putting yourself in other people's shoes and that's really not enough. It's, it's really about taking what they say, what they believe, their perspective, their views as, as truth. You know, it, it's, that is their truth and it's, you have to treat them in that way. And um, you know, it, it's shifting from, uh, you know, sort of the golden rule to the, the platinum rule about, 
you know, treating people, not how you want to be treated, but how they want to be treated. And, you know, that's, that's incredibly important. And I, I think that helps get, you know, cause obviously a lot of times when we're talking about this, we get into people's deeply held beliefs that have been instilled in them through, through childhood. And so it, it's hard to shift those, but if you, if you shift to that, like that for this person, what they're saying is their experience is, is truly real. That makes it easier for people to truly be empathetic by that definition. I love that. So what gets measured gets done. That's what we say in corporate America, right? To make things happen. And that's the way you fix things. So what are the metrics that companies should be tracking in their contingent workforce as step one? Yeah, I mean, there's, there's a lot. Um, and again, it's what works for one company isn't going to work for others. And we're, so we're seeing a, a lot of different approaches here. First and foremost, you, you've got to capture all of your contingent workers in some way. And many companies don't do that at all, regardless of diversity, right? So they don't even know, they can't answer these very basic questions. How many non-employees do I have in my organization? So you have to first answer those basic questions and then you need to start getting you know, deeper. And, and so that includes tracking you know, at the worker level, the you know, various EEOC you know, diversity you know, characteristics and, and Beeline lets, lets our clients do that, but only doing it once somebody is a worker and only for the purpose of rolled up reporting. You know, it's not letting an individual manager know, you know, how each person identifies that's on their team, but it's really rolling up to say that our organization is, you know, 60%, uh, you know, people who identify as female or, or what have you. So it's, it's doing it at that rolled up level. Mm-hmm. And then I think there's other interesting things too, in terms of like, and especially now with this whole idea of, of remote work, which I think we'll get into later is like, you know, where are the people you're hiring from? You know, are they from areas that are historically disadvantaged? Because even if you don't know, uh, you know, about a person's, you know, ethnicity, if you know where they're from, you can make certain assumptions. There's lots of interesting things that you can do. And, you know, we need to make it easier for the workers themselves to control this information uh, because it really is theirs to own. And and how, you know, Frank, you know, part of that's because how people identify can, can change. Absolutely. No, and I love that you're including the part where I'm in control of my, my, my information and how I use it. I think that's the other part that people are forgetting about is like, let's roll up this data, let's figure out what to do with it. But you have to make sure the person sharing it has, it feels comfortable and secure that it's happening. Well, and and to that point, you know, I think it's incumbent on all of us in the industry, all of the, the sort of stakeholders, right? Our clients who are the buyers of contingent labor, suppliers of contingent labor, VMSs and other technologies, MSPs, to, to show that this information is going to be used for good, right? Because people's experience, they may be you know, reluctant to share it because in the past it's been used against them. And that's, that's the experience they've had. And so we all have to kind of band together about why we're doing this. Absolutely. What are some of the biggest barriers to tracking those metrics? I'm sure you've heard all sorts of stories and pushbacks on why we can't do this. I mean, I, the one I just mentioned is, is certainly a huge one. People don't want to share this information. Uh, you know, that's that's number one from the worker perspective, and then the company perspective. The one I hear more often than not is 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 being risk adverse from a legal perspective. That you know, doing this increases my risk of co-employment, or simply you know, uh, a, a relatively higher risk adverse. You know, we're not going to put that kind of information in a system uh, that we we don't control right and and so that's that's a big part of it and that's why as soon as when we see companies start this journey you know maybe they only start out tracking gender and then they add ethnic diversity you know they slowly add these things 
in. And then, you know, some of it is, is, and Elijah probably can speak better to this than I can, but like from a governmental regulation standpoint, different countries have different rules here. Um, what's allowed in the U.S. is not what's allowed in the U.K. Not versus what's in Germany. Yeah, this is always the best seller. But what's the confusion around co-employment, and how would you define that term? It's definitely uh, an interesting one. So, to me, again, this is my definition. It, you know, co-employment is about more than one organization. Well, the premise of co-employment is about more than one organization sharing the risks associated with employment and that an environment has been created through years of certain circumstances and case law where given the circumstances there can be a risk for more than one company uh, to be viewed as an employer of a sole person yeah. and this is of course you know most common in a world where uh, companies are utilizing the services of staffing agencies and, and staffing providers, uh, but it is it is different around the world, you know, and I've, I've been away from Australia for 10 years, uh, but it was something that up until the point where I left, it had been tested, co-employment, and it never passed the test in the view that based on the circumstances of, you know, one of the, the, the big cases that could have led Australia to taking the view that co-employment was a real thing, that in all reality, uh, you know, if you look really deeply, it will be clear that one uh, employer or, you know, staffing company or, you know, host client are the employer and not the other and kind of draw that determination. But that isn't the way in the US. And I think that to Hoff's point, that's why that it's extended over the years to this concern about, you know, too much contact or uh, involvement with the temporary workforce or contingent mm-hmm. and not inviting them to the Christmas party because that could change how they're viewed from a, a legal standpoint in terms of who their relationships with. And I, I definitely understand that, you know, companies want to protect themselves, but I think it will, you know, in more cases than not come down to that detailed test of understanding who really is controlling the relationship. And by virtue of that, if all companies are doing what they should be, staffing companies are doing what they should be doing in terms of the relationship with their people and their, their host organisations that they're working also doing what they should be doing, then I don't think that treating people with respect, uh, and encouraging inclusion amongst a bunch of people who are sharing an environment is going to really move the needle on some of that other stuff that will have a, a greater bearing on whether or not, uh, you know, someone could be potentially be viewed as being employed by one organisation or another or, or both at the same time. Yeah. So, so being, nice, being nice to... Contingent worker is not a co-employment risk. Is that what you're saying? Uh, I think that is saying it perfectly. Uh, perfectly. Uh, it, it's, it's not. Um, you know, I, and I, the other thing, I, again, I, it's such an interesting statistic. If truly 40 to 50% of the workforce are contingent, then you want everybody to be engaged who's in your business helping your business, not just the people who are full-time employees. And so... <laughs> Being nice <laughs> and and being deliberate about uh, extending these type of uh, initiatives to them is only going to help that cause, I think. Yeah, and I, I think it's it's we have to shift the paradigm. Co-employment is viewed as this like four-letter word, and you know, yes, there are like if you if managed incorrectly, there are you know it can negatively impact your business. But there's actually there's positives to somebody being considered your co-employee. Like, you know, from an insurance perspective, from a lawsuit perspective, they can't sue you for unlimited liability. 
if they're your co-employee and like things like that. And, and that's part of that, that shifting of, of attitudes that people need to, to think about. And then, you know, at, again, as you know, drive the point home, these people are critical to getting product out their door. So if you have somebody working on a business critical project and they don't understand how that project like fits into the success of the company because they were excluded from a company meeting because they were a contractor, like, and you're paying them $250 an hour, like what? Like it, <laughs> it sort of boggles the mind. Oh, yeah. absolutely. And it's also interesting because I think the laws and the, how we're interpreting the laws are from the 90s and society has moved forward and we really moved into this gig space. Yeah. And the reality is that we also have social media now. And so I think this co-employment risk model that we put together where we're trying to manage the risk in a way that's not really relevant by making people feel alienated is essentially creating systemic um, Me Too moments, if you think about it. So you're actually creating liability by trying to manage liability and you're going to have a bigger impact on your stock price if people start saying they feel harassed at organizations. Well, and think about the well-known stories of, you know, contingent workers banding together and writing letters and, you know, forming you know, sort of pseudo unions, like the, to your point, the impact of that on stock price and is probably more than the, the risk that was avoided. Yeah. Right. And I, I think it's really clear, like we're sort of half jokingly talking about Christmas parties and things like that, but, you know, it also implies to the company's, diversity, equity, and inclusion initiatives, right? You know, if you're, if you're, you know, you know, having a, being somewhat facetious, a committee on, on inclusivity within an organization and 50% of your, your, uh, your workers are non-employees, but they're not represented on that committee in some way. Like you're missing the boat. hundred percent. Well said. We're seeing a lot of news about the great resignation and companies who are asking their employees to come back to the office are saying I quit. Do you think we're in the middle of a workplace revolution? How can companies create cultures where employees feel passionate, engaged in this new era and still feel like they're part of the culture? We can both talk about this because we're employees. <laughs> <Yeah>. oh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I mean, no question we're in the middle of a, of a revolution in the workplace. Uh, I think, you know, the balance of influence or for lack of a better word power if that's the word we want to use you know in the in the true definition has shifted towards the employee and i i think that's not a bad thing um and it's something that organizations have to accept uh and learn to work with and you know i think that i was talking about this with someone the other day the example that we were talking about was you know perhaps before the pandemic if a colleague was in the office and they had to leave at three o'clock because they had to run home to help their spouse or something or something was happening at the house, then there might be this feeling of guilt associated with, you know, leaving work early and, and doing that. And uh, that's gone. And I think that's great because uh, the one thing that the pandemic has forced us to do is to feel empowered to seek balance in our lives. And, you know, there's the flip side too of the notion of, you know, waking up and walking 20 steps to your office, which is just next to the kitchen and then sitting there until 8 p.m. and going, I haven't moved, I've worked all day, which you know, is, is a different problem altogether. But yeah. I think companies need to harness that balance and really look for it. I think that they're, and encourage it, and I think there is, uh, you know, some danger potentially that companies need to think about it in, in terms of this, you know, you asked it in your question, you know, mandating this return that is leading to people to potentially say, I quit, you know, I'm not interested in working here anymore because, you know, oversimplifying it, 
would potentially be saying to people, well, we trusted you for 18 months to do your yeah. job really well, and you did it really well, uh, but we don't trust you anymore. And I think that that, that is, is rife with potential risk and, and I think flies in the face of that, that, that revolution that we are going through. Yeah, I think it's very true. Like, you know, these sort of across-the-board mandates for whole large companies don't, just don't make sense. It really should be, like, trusting people to make the right decisions individually in smaller teams and in, in how they actually work. Because, you know, you know, even within a relatively small organization like Beeline, what makes sense for one department versus another, you know, it, you know we have to listen to those people. And I think we're, we're trying to do that. And you know, I think the other thing that companies really need to think about as they make these policies, it is the potential impact on, you know, on diversity, equity, inclusion efforts, because like, you know, we've seen a big trend towards remote hiring, right. With it, with contractors of companies that you, you know, even if they let their employees work remotely from time to time, pre pandemic contractors almost never were allowed to, but then now they've realized, you know, we can save money, fill jobs faster, et cetera, by, you know, widening the net and, you know, hiring outside of the, you know, the, 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 the area we're in, which happens to be, you know, a, a place where pay rates are higher, you know, we can hire more, you know, in more rural areas and things like that. But that could have a disproportionate impact on underrepresented individuals. And so how do you, how do you do that? How do you create policies and tools that let people that are disadvantaged have the same advantages that, you know, again, like we're, we're privileged, like, you know, you know, I'm, my kids are older, so I didn't have to deal with being a school teacher. But you know, even people in professional jobs, to Elijah's point, have more flexibility. And so, how do we make those same things available to to all people? Yeah, and the other thing I want to add is, that, like, there's clear benefit in being together, and there's clear benefit in being in the same room and 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 working together and sharing ideas and uh, you know supporting that notion of, of diverse thinking. And so. It's not, you know, okay, everybody should just work remotely forever for, and, you know, in, in all companies. But I think that creating an environment where people want to be together as opposed to feeling forced, I think is something that, that where potentially companies could shift their thinking. And I think that, you know, to, to Hoff's point, the level of, of, of effort that they might put into something is directly connected to their level of engagement and feeling like they have that freedom and flexibility to make adult decisions um, and bear the responsibility of, of them you know, feeling good about their job they're doing and the value they're contributing is, is really, I think, an important important place where we, sh we should end up. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I kind of think people, are, companies are overthinking this whole, you have to show up every day. You know, as long as you build a culture where there are times where you meet, meet together when needed to sort of engage and, and, and create ideas, but on the flip side, if somebody's working from home and they're not working, then just get rid of them. Yeah. <laughs> it's easy, right? You don't have to measure them every, like if you need to hire employees, you have to see if they're physically at their chair and they're watching, they're surfing the web and not doing work. It's not any better if they're sitting at home or at work, you're still not getting productivity. But if you see, if you start measuring by objectives, I think wherever they are, they can still get us done, you know? Yeah, and and good managers will, will have the, and leaders will have the uh, capability of, to your point, Ash, of making that assessment by supporting rather than perhaps supervising in the old, old, you know, terminology. Yeah. Like, Brian, how often did you go to the office before COVID? 
Not very much. I mean, I, I mean, frankly, I was probably more, in the, you know, I'm based in Denver, was more in the Jacksonville office more often than I was in the, the actual Denver local office because of, of travel. But yeah, I mean, it's, it, yeah, it, not, not that often. And yeah, the, the, it's about managing people to, to objectives, not, you know, these preconceived notions. And, you know, one of, like one of Beeline's, we, we have these nine principles and one of our principles is assuming positive intent, you know, and I think that's a, a big, like, you know, with, when, I, when I manage my people, like I'm not assuming that they're screwing around, you know, like it's, I'm assuming that they're doing their job and it, that is reflected in the results that they have. Okay. And I think it's going to be really interesting too, you know, like, you know, you know, Elijah knows this and I think you do too, Ash, like I used to travel all the time and, uh, you know, I think the people keep on asking me, when are you going to go back to traveling the way you used to? And I think the world is shifting, but the reasons we travel are going to be different, uh, you know, because we've, we've proven and many companies have proven that they can run their businesses, but I think where we're missing is is deepening relationships, creating meaningful new ones, fixing broken ones, and that that's going to be why people come together in, in a lot of cases. You guys just made me think of a new um, campaign line. I think for co- post COVID, instead of the back to work thing, what about if we call it "Unleash the Talent"? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so this is amazing, guys. Um, I did I did want to give Beeline a little bit of time as well. Can you talk to us a little bit about, without sharing too much um, that you're not allowed to, about the things you guys are doing with diversity, inclusion, and how it's going to help change the industry or lead it forward at a high level? Yeah, I mean, I think it's, uh, there's sort of three different things that come to mind immediately. I mean, one is just, you know, it's incumbent on us to have conversations with our clients and help and help them and provide perspective um, on, you know, what, what we think they should be doing and not, not in a prescriptive way, you know, like Beeline always tries to listen to our clients, problems, business goals, challenges, issues, and then combine those with our own perspectives and best practices to come up with a workable solution. And that I think uh, applies here. You know, one of the things we value is, you know, we value our customers immensely, but like, customer first just, you know, goes throughout Beeline. In fact, it's another one of our principles that anyone that's not me is, is my, my customer. And so that, that's how we're treating this diversity, equity, and inclusion journey. So it's, you know, again, about those small steps in some cases the clients need to take. Uh, and second is they, you know, take advantage of the technology we have today and then advise us on the things we should be doing in the future because, you know, coming up with better ways to track diversity, equity, and inclusion uh, measure it, et cetera, is, is a, a key thing in our strategic roadmap. And then the, the third is to to leverage uh, the partner. You know, our, our partner ecosystem uh, is incredibly important to us. Partners like Consciously Unbiased, um, you know, our MSP partners, uh, you know, talent partners that can help um, increase the diversity uh, of your of your your, your contingent workforce uh, are important too. And so those are the things we ask our customers to look at and decide what to do. Love it. And we're going to end this with what's one small action step or micro progression, as you call it, a consciously unbiased that leaders at all, all levels can take to build a greater sense of belonging within the workplace? It's, it's a really, really good question. And uh, I don't want to sound too cliche by the use of this word, but I think to an extent, you know, showing yourself as being vulnerable and not all knowing. Yeah, um, and I think you know leadership at its core is about that, and 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 listening and learning and understanding and being curious, and you know the highest paid people in a company don't always have all of the answers, and I think that 
you know, it comes back to, um, to a big part, in my opinion, of creating that type of environment that is one that is, is ultimately safe. I love it. Yeah, I think that's, a, that's, that's well said. And it kind of related to that is, you know, I like that sort of micro progression approach that you guys take. Like, what's one thing I can do today? You know, it, it, you know, one conversation that I could have where I make myself vulnerable or even just like, you know, reading something that makes me feel uncomfortable and, and take another's perspective. You know, I think those, those little things start to add up and, you know, fall rolling downhill kind of thing. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that brings up a really good point about being going back to the curiosity and just constantly growing, right? I think mm-hmm. when we stop learning, we don't really need to be around anymore. And that's something we always have to remember. We yeah. don't all. Thank you guys. This is amazing. Of course. Thank you for having us. Really appreciate it. You can find out more about our amazing guest and some of the resources we mentioned on the show at consciouslyunbiased.com slash listen. Thanks for listening to Breaking the Bias.